Now you can go. Okay. Okay, so I want to start over again because I've made a boo-boo. Uh, I want to pursue this thing about who the powers were in town and what roles they played so that we could understand that aspect of the cultural dynamics in this little town. That's what I was just about to talk about. I'm glad. Let's do I it. I do it. The, the power worlds and the peasants had been on opposite sides of the fence for long before I ever arrived here, long before any of this effort to bring these churches together. What do you mean they were on opposite sides of the fence? And they, they fought each other on everything. Uh, and they fought to who was going to be selectman. It was a, it was a, in my grandmother's time, they, it was Republican, de Democrat. And the Faroes were the Democrats and the Presidents were the Republicans. And then it slowly disintegrated over the years before I got here. And I can't tell you about the dynamics of that because I wasn't around enough to know except that often they weren't even speaking to each other and if they could sabotage the road work in the town, somebody would sabotage the road work in the town because they, somebody was on the outs with one of the other ones. It was, it was a strange dynamic, you know, it went back to the Democratic canon and the Republican canon and all, all those dynamics came together. At, what are you talking about? What, what, tell us about the canon issue you're talking about. You know about the canon. Well, I know about the Democratic canon disappeared and was later found. You're talking about it having been stolen by the well, Republicans. Well, they used to steal each other's cannons so they couldn't be have the cannons to shoot off when the 4th of July came around. Where would they shoot them off when they shot them off? On the, on the, at the ballpark. Hmm. Where it, they they had a parade ground up there and and, and and I guess they shot it off downtown. I never was around when the cannon got shot off, so I don't know who did it. Did these two factions uh, conflict at town meeting? Oh, absolutely. Did you see it? The town meeting was incredible. I I actually was enchanted with the town meetings because they would got so heated. And uh, what would they fight about? Oh, everything. They fight over every warrant article. If the pheasants were for it, the Harwells were against it. Who spoke for the Fessenden clan? Oh, well, Alan Fessenden and, and uh, Forrest Jr. I don't mean Forrest, Orville Jr. Who, who spoke for the Farwell clan? All of uh, Clarence and, and uh, Bentley and the whole bunch of them. They were burning each other's houses up, by God. It was unbelievable, Peter. I don't, I can't speak to the history of that because I don't have the history of that in my mind. I wasn't there to see it, but I was there to hear about it. And I, I, you, you would not believe the... Uh, Bad feelings. 
But the one thing I always did notice that I was amazed at is that from, from the season when they started doing Christmas roping, just before Christmas, until town meeting in March, nobody was speaking to anybody else on the other side. They were just, it was, the atmosphere was charged. And town meeting would come and they'd fight all the way through town meeting and the town meeting would be over and everybody was friends again for the rest of the year till the next roping season. When they would sit around making that roping, I think they would all just get so frustrated with each other, and the weather was cold, and, and the, 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 the economic situation was really devastating. And I think that's one of the, but that's my own personal analysis. I, you know, I, I never saw such a crazy little town as, when they were in that phase. Did but their children on, get along? The children got along well in school. They all loved school. My, my kids loved going to that little one. Well, I mean these conflicting camps. They well, got I, I don't think they picked it up until they started doing roping. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how about within the church? Was this conflict? Did it show oh, itself? That was a, that's the, the basis of the Brookline Bell and all of those problems. The kids used to break into the church and they thought they had a right to do it. And some other people thought they didn't have the right to do it. And it was going on from long before I moved here. Well, what role did Alton Jensen, who you mentioned, have in this dynamic? Well, Alton was one of the more common, calmer heads. And I I think he was pretty, well, no, he wasn't. He, he was really one, he worked so hard on helping us get the pastors from Andover Newton. He went down to Andover Newton himself and talked with the uh, head honchos down there, and he promised them his help. And he was moderator of the church for a good part of that time. That, that we were getting all those wonderful ministers in. And he was very uh, supportive of Don Rawlingson, who was probably the most dynamic minister I ever knew. Who, uh, Besides that? my grandfather, who I didn't know. <laughs> I'm wondering in this uh, tension between Farwells and Fessenden's, did other families align with yeah, those two? Yes. And, and the newer families that were moving in were had had more education than most of the local families had had, and they tended to join with the Fessenden's because they and 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 all Jensen was on that side. The Fessenden side. Yes. Okay. And it and it, it wasn't just the pheasants or just the farwells, but it was a, a class type of thing too. I think there were a lot of class dynamics there because if they had more education, they tended to be interested in the church and as you uh, 
do more with the schools. Of course, I was all involved with the schools all that time. I was in school work for nine years back in there. Uh, well, you uh, you were in a, you were on the select board too. When was that? I wonder. Oh, I was. I I think I held every position in Brooklyn at one time or another. There might be a few I didn't. And how did you manage in that position? That I was always on the pheasants. Uh, That's what my question. Yeah, and Clarence says you well know, and I didn't get along at all. Clarence was a thorn in my side. I was a thorn in his side. And but Old Grover was quite a character. Tell us about you, him. You had a lot of contact with him yourself, didn't you? Not a lot. Well, he he was a mixed bag, that's for sure. He really had cared about Brookline, and so did the Clarence. There's no question about it. But they, they didn't like anybody telling them what to do or what they, where they were wrong or about anything. And so they were very difficult people to deal with. That's why Mary Fessenden was such a breakthrough for me as, as far as the church action is concerned. And when, when the Catholics started to co cooperate, Mary was Mary was a peasant, and I forget what her name was before she was married, but she was part of the, the royal family of, of Catholics in Boston, the Kennedys, and the, she, was, she was a queen. She was really, really a wonderful woman. How and did she a she had to handle that nasty old logo. Was it so... <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, you, okay, a couple of things. You said that Grover could be a tough guy, but you also said, apparently, that Orville could be a tough guy. Oh, yes, he could. Did you knock heads with him? I, I, I jostled with him all the time. I probably, he probably frustrated me more often than Grover was able to frustrate and the, and, but, but anyway. Well, but again, uh, how did uh, uh, Mary Fessenden... Which, she just managed Orville. No, and she did Orville. it all for me. I, did, I didn't do anything to ever get along with Orville. I just went and saw Mary. Mary was part of the Catholic Church, and this was two Protestant churches trying to get their uh, act together. Absolutely. It so was, how... I don't understand. Uh, I don't... I, it's still a miracle to me that Barry was so interested in what I was doing and was so responsive. But she was also very well educated in comparison to even Orville. Orville was not that well educated, Orville Sr. And she, she just knew that the way to get this thing to start working was to get the two churches to start working together with the Catholics, and she and she cooperated and she helped me so much. She was just a sweet lady, and she was so welcoming every time I came to see her. I can cry about it right now, thinking about what she, how sweet she was. That's lovely. And 
Who was it? The, the, the pheasant boy that gave me so much trouble over the uh, uh, right away down there by the by the Mississippi River. It was an environmental issue. They, they, the pheasants on the garage that was such a racket and was dumping all this stuff in the river, and that was a a, a, a fight with both. And the pheasants and the fowls were both fighting with me over that one. Well, that makes me think of a subject, and there's so many things. How many d days do I get to do this? <laughs> How many what? How many days do I get to sit down with you? <laughs> as many as I, as you can manage, okay. because my yeah. time is, 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 the, is she can manage. Well, zoning. Uh, were you involved in trying to get zoning in town? Involved in everything, Peter. I, I knew that would be the answer, but I was just uh, opening up with that. So tell us uh, about that fight. Now, which one are you speaking? Zoning. Zoning? Oh my God, did you know Florence Palmer? Yes. Well, Florence Palmer and Paul Struckman and I did the zoning deal. And we fought with both the Pheasants and the Farwells over that. And it was a it was probably ten year battle. Why did you do it? Because we had to. Why? If we were going to get control of what was happening, we wanted to preserve the rural character of the town. What time frame are you talking about? A whole time we wanted. Uh, what year? Oh, it was all, all all the years. The, the zoning thing took place in the late in the middle 50s. Well, I was thinking the 70s. But, but it was, I, I don't think we really got a good zoning ordinance. I had to fight it at the state level in order to get get the legislation so that we could do it. And it was all tied in together with my state legislature stuff. And I, but I had my finger on almost every pie because I was very into the, the uh, education stuff. Well, I'm going to tell you some more about starting the soup program at the school. Because, and I'm going to tell you about starting the youth fellowship group. Well, you go ahead because I got questions. But they're, that, they're, they were long-term battles too. What about building schools in town? Building schools? Yes. Oh, I, I had to fight for every one of the school buildings. <laughs> I, I remember the year that we finally voted to build the, the school Which up one? on Milford uh, on Street. They call it the Mahakian School now? Yeah. But it's, we, we lost the, the, the bond issues like four or five years in a row. And, but we kept working on it. And we came down to this, I, I would say somewhere around 1956 or something like that. We've been at it for four or five years. And 
we were had gone through all the whole presentation and, uh, and we were voting in the voting mode and I was walking down to put my ballot in the ballot box and Orville Pheasant walked by and he showed me his ballot and he voted yes and then a little later one of the Farwells walked by and they said, I voted for it. And I thought, oh my God, what happened? And I never did know what really happened, but all of a sudden it, it clicked with them and, and, and it passed. We were so astounded. We had to settle for practically four-room school when we wanted a six-room school. And we had to settle for an all-purpose room that was used for a classroom and, and we had we had to oh uh, we hired an architect we were supposed to hire an architect and if we hired the architect we couldn't afford to come up with paying him so we went ahead and did it anyway without an architect and uh, Tom Moran and Alan Fesenden and I worked on the plans for the school and we came up with a school for $80,000. That was all it cost. And no architect, no professional engineer. And then Tom and Alan and I were on site every single day that school was being built for the first time. And my uncle Elwood doubts for water in that field in order to... Elwood Perrin? Did you know Elwood? No. He was a dowser. And I'll have to tell you about that. You better write Elwood Perrin down there somewhere because that's another whole story all by itself. Okay, um, well, run with it. But the, all the dynamics of bringing the, the two uh, factions together and getting the zoning and getting it, all, all of that stuff. So Florence, Florence Palmer and Paula Struggman and I did it, formed a group called Build a Better Brookline. You probably have heard of Build a Better. The Pheasants and the Farwells hated it. They were furious over it because we got the information out to the people that they... But it, it, it was a, a, a constant steady battle. For all these fights, uh, there must have been times when people said threatening things, bad things. I, w I was told that they were going to kill me. And I'm not going to tell you who said he was going to kill me, but I, he meant it. Do you remember what the issue was? Was it school or zoning or...? It was zoning. Zoning. Wow. Unbelievable. Look who led... Live, outlived who? <laughs> I didn't hear you. Look who outlived who? <laughs> yeah. 
Or maybe. Uh, I don't know who it was. I had, I, it was an interesting experience. It, it, what I always look at Brooklyn as, as a microcosm of all of the things that were happening in the country. If it was happening in other places, it was happening here. Or if it was happening here, it was happening in other places. Why in the world would you always jump in the line of fire like that? Well, I was fascinated, and I felt like somebody had to do it. And if we just sat back and did nothing, we would have nothing. There must have been times when your husband, Sid, said, Betty, give it up. Oh, he was so supportive. He never did. I don't think he ever said that. That's wonderful. But he hated it to go to the meetings. He didn't like the meetings, and he hated the meetings. Why? He just he didn't like to sit still that long. <laughs> did you ever see Sid? <laughs> right. He was always on the move. Yes. And okay, so... Uh, <laughs> A little bit about Elwood Perrin. Well, Elwood Perrin lives in that house right over there. This is we're in the historical society building, and you're where talking, the big rock, where the big rock is, where the meeting house stood. That that house there. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And Elwood was my mother's youngest brother, okay. and he was a. Slightly mentally retarded, but he was a sweet person, and he had this ability to doubt. And he could take a, a wand and and walk along, and he had a routine. And this, when this rod, when he get over water, this rod would tighten and he and roll, and he had to fight to hold it back. And then he would ask it how deep the water was. And it was fascinating to watch him do it. He, and when he, and then he'd say, dig there. And then they dig there, and there was water. And my, my husband said, did not believe it. He was an engineer. He went to MIT. He did not believe that Elwood was do, doing this, or it was even possible. So he set up a test for my Uncle Elwood, family test. And we had our well up on the top of the hill that gravity fed down into our house to give us water. And then we had a, a big wheel that goes off and my grandfather, Perrin, dug the well, and 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 they dug the, the, the piping down for the house. But anyway, they had it so that you could, in the bottom of the cellar of our house, you could turn off the water from the well on the hill. So the water had to flow under the road through the pipes that they built. They When they built it, it it was a dirt road, so they just dug their way across and laid the pipes down into the cellar of our house. So Sid stationed one of his boys at the at this this thing, and we, he set up Elwood to go up the hill and walk along. 
and walk across where these pipes were. And when the water was running, the pipe, the stick would go down. And when it wasn't running, the stick would not go down. And Sid made what he, uh, he kept tracking the book and made trials of, uh, of, and he would tell one boy to run down and tell the little kid in the cell to turn it on or to turn. He never could fool Ella once. Always when the water was running, the stick would go down and Ella would say, here's where the water is running. And Elwood had his own idea that it really was something to do with it with the way the water structure in the rocks was and the, and there was something anyway all of our local water people swore by Elwood and Elwood said so we asked Elwood to to douse for the water at the school that's what started me on this story and he doused and we found water at the school, and, but I don't remember whether it was a Farwell or a Pheasant said that's false, you shouldn't do that and you're not, and tried to stop us from dousing that water, for that water. So anyway, Elwood proved himself capable of doing this. So once, one time I looked out the back window of our house in Brooklyn, and there's Elwood out in the back, in our backyard. And he was walking along with his stick, and, and all of a sudden the stick was going down. And it was at night, and he was, he was experimenting to see if there was water in our backyard, just because he wanted to see. Uh, and so anyway, I think I lost part of the story. He 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 was not trying to see if there was water in the backyard. He had taken a penny and put it in the ground and buried it, and then he had covered it all over and put the grass on over, and the. Darn stick went down over the penny. So then he started using pennies when he was doing his dowsing to do the groundwork for his dowsing. But it was really a fascinating thing to watch him. And my, my husband said became a believer. That's a wonderful story. But and a, and a lot of people can do it, but some people can't. It has to do with something that's in your body that makes the, that, that happen. In Alwood's opinion, and Sid decided it, was, it had to be the same. But some people have it and some people don't. That's a wonderful thing. Um, I was, you mentioned also... Uh, okay. Well, we did the youth group. We touched on it a little <laughs> bit. Uh, <coughs> I think I told about the youth group at one of our things. 
Yeah, I, w- well, I was. A lot of people I mentioned in the youth group as we were. Yeah, they when they did, did that uh, group thing out there, yeah. there were people that were in the youth group, and they told about that. Yeah, Randy Haight recently mentioned how wonderful you and Sid were taking them up skiing someplace, <laughs> up some cabin somewhere. I just found a really sweet note from Ann Corey telling me how much she cared about the youth group and what we did with the youth group. How long did you run the youth group? I think it was about 10 or 15 years. And what did you think you wanted to accomplish it? There was nothing for the kids in town and we wanted to take that church building that was sitting empty and do something valuable with it. And we were able to sell the organ in it for a lot of money. It was an antique. And we refurbished the building and we had a basketball program in there. There was no gym in this little $80,000 school that was first built. And we ran it until they started having no programs at the school. And yeah, did 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 what we did at the youth group at the church, but we had dancing schools and all all kinds of stuff, including religious education. You mentioned a character, and I think characters are going to be be a big part of Sid's town history. And the character I'm thinking of, I remember him a little bit, was Webster Bridges. Oh, Webster. One of my real enemies. He was a different kind of guy. He he was. You know him, didn't you? I did. But for posterity, why don't uh, uh, why don't we? Well, he aligned himself with every one of the negative forces in Brooklyn, and he was always opposed to everything that I wanted to, to do, and he was. And he was not an honest person. He, he did some really very dishonest things. And <laughs> he decided that uh, he, he actually, he ran against me for the legislature and a couple of times he defeated me and then I came back and defeated him and went on back and forth. And he ran for the Senate, and he won. And he was, and he was in the. It was aligned with with Bernie Streeter, and he and Bernie were anxious to be the mafia of New Hampshire, I think. But anyway, he was he was a character that was very difficult. So he decided to run for Congress. And he and he put signs every part of the second generation of Israel. You couldn't see see them, and and he didn't win. But then he came back and he ran against me again, and I and he put out all signs all over the Newtown district, and. I had my signs up, 
and my signs were were disappearing and so one of my my fans saw all his signs and we had a sign war going on so said my my said would go out every night and take up all my signs so I wouldn't lose all my signs. And he'd go out and get his signs, and we would have to replant them every day for the whole of the, uh, of the session. But my Sid was determined he wasn't. And any time there weren't, he, he lost signs. Sid made a new one up at our shop. He had it all set up with a silk screen set up so that every time he needed a new sign to put out, he put it out. It was—it was really comical. You—you uh, you ran for federal office, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I ran four, fourteen times. No, Not did you read run for Congress or something? No, I ran for state senate. State senate, it was. Well, let's see, you, you lost once on a flip of the coin. You're correct. And what else, what, what was the outcome? You, you were defeated once? I don't know, oh, I'm asking. I had four terms on, four terms off, I think. And then after that, I up to 14 terms I served. And rumor is but they were not consecutive. Okay, well, you get credit anyhow. Why would one do that to oneself? Well, I loved it. Why? Because I met so many wonderful people. You know, I'm talking about these people who are were negative and for every negative one I fought over the years, there were at least. Ten really wonderful people that I met, and I got to know them, and and it was so rewarding, and it still is. People still come up to me sometimes and say, "I remember when you were riding your bicycle." And why don't you say a word about that? The bicycle was a big part of your campaign. I rode a thousand miles on my bicycle when I ran for the state senate. Twenty-six towns I rode all over the whole of southern New Hampshire. And I never was in such good physical shape in my whole life. And I had the best time I met fascinating people. Lee, one of my favorite stories is that my son Lee and I were out campaigning in Mason. And I stopped by on my bike. I was on my bike, and I went up to this, up to this house. I, I, it, it, I always had my literature with me. So if they weren't home, I'd leave my literature on their doorstep. So I went into this one place, and then there was nobody home. And so I headed up to leave the. And a rooster came out and bit me in the ankle, and my son Lee never got over. <laughs> he thought that was the funniest oh, thing said. that ever happened. That he'd see that rooster come flying out of the the barn, and he leapt right on, the, and he took a huge chunk out of my ankle, and 
And uh, I said, Lee, I'm hurting. You've got to stop laughing. <laughs> and, but, uh, and, and another similar story to that was I knock on this door and this guy answered and he said, come in. A lot of the times I, everywhere I went, people wanted me to come in because they'd never seen anybody go door to door in this rural area. I'm sure. So, More sense. So, and I, oh, I made some wonderful friends, Peter, in Peterborough and all those places. I know that people in every one of those towns, all of the whole southern Manhattan region. And, but anyway, I knocked on this guy's door and he said, I invited me to come in and I stepped inside and on every inch of the wall were guns, guns hanging up everywhere. And he, and he looked at me and he said, how do you feel about gun control? <laughs> and I said, I'm in favor of it. And he said, oh. Get out of here, you know. And so I, I graciously thanked him for talking to me, and I left. And I was standing out of the polls on the day of the election, and up comes this guy, and he walks past me like I was dirt on the ground, and goes in and votes. And he came back out and he said, I voted for you. <laughs> Can you believe that? That's and I said, I can't believe you voted for me. I said, you were, you were so strong on, on those guns and you were so disgusted. And he said, well, I still believe, love my guns. But he said, you were honest enough to say it. And you had the courage to say it. That's a wonderful story. So that's a, that was that's the kind of satisfaction I got out of the joint. Most of my colleagues did not like the campaign, but I thought the campaigning was the best part of it. Even when I was running for the school board in Brookline, or or I was campaigning for one of the presidential candidates. I go love to go around and knock on doors and ask people to vote. All right, so give me a, the thumbnail version of the lawn chair and President Bush and the Secret Service and <laughs> the beginning of your criminal career. <laughs> well, I got arrested, you know. You've heard the. Why'd you get arrested? I got arrested because I didn't move into a free zone, free speech zone that the that they told me I had to move into. I was sitting outside, I was in Nashville, and I was sitting there holding a sign saying, Bush is bad for America. And they had come along and asked me to move. And I had moved a couple of times because I, they said I was standing too close to the road. It was dangerous. Well, I thought it was a reasonable enough reason to move. So I moved back well back from the edge of the road and I set up my chair and I sat I had that remember I had that cane I could sit on yes I just sat on my cane and I was holding Bush's bed for America and this policeman came on and told me I had to go down the road 
to this free speech zone. And I said, well, I'm, uh, every place in America is free. It's free right here. I'm not moving. And he said, you have to move. And I said, well, I'm not moving. And he said, well, I'll have to arrest you. And I said, well, if you have to, you have to. So he went off. He was about 19 years old, and he, he was not happy that he, I didn't do what I, he asked me to do. And then four policemen came back, and they told me I would have to go down to the... I said, I'm not moving. I have moved four times already, and I'm not going to move again. So they picked me up and carried me off to the patio and took me over to Hudson, to this jail in Hudson, because they were afraid they were going to have to fill the whole jail up in Nashville with the, with the protesters. And there were four of us that were arrested with me at the same time. And they took us all, all to Hudson. And they booked me and fingerprinted me and put me in a jail cell. It was nice and clean, well lighted, and it had a bed. So I climbed up on the bed and I fell asleep while they, they, they were, they told me they would call my son and then he'd have to come and bail me out. So I, I fell asleep and they, they, they he, Sid came, Sid Jr. came and bailed me out. And so then I had to go to trial. And the judge who quit, they, they offered me a plea bargain. And it was 12 hours of community service. I said, that's an insult. I've been doing community service all my life. I am not going to take a plea bargain. And all of that, we went to the trial, and this poor little policeman said, well, I, I want to tell you, Deb, Deb, Michael Pignatelli called me and offered to pro bono represent me. And he got out the record that I had been a co-sponsor of a piece of legislation about trespassing. And they told me I was, that I was, didn't follow this, this law that I had sponsored myself. And so, when, De when Michael asked, came to cross-examine the police, the policeman, he said, did she do this and that was in the law? No, he said, she was a, such a nice lady. She didn't do that. And then he did, she do this? No, she was such a nice lady. And he went through every single thing in the law that I had been the sponsor of. And no, I hadn't done any of them. So I said, this case is dismissed. I love it. That's a wonderful story. Isn't that a wonderful story? Right. That part of the story never got in the newspapers. Everybody knows it. It's famous now. Well, they knew that I was arrested, but I mean the part about the law. No, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, let me shift. Forgive yeah. me. Um, 
again, we're coming to the end of the tape, but we'll wait till it stops. Uh, as far as the major players in town in the 50s, 60s, um, I get the impression that Miriam Jepsen had a big role. Well, she was she was a supervisor of the checklist, and I was the first office I ever ran for was supervisor of the checklist. So I went on the checklist with Miriam and got acquainted with her that that way, and we really liked each other a lot. And Miriam was a very smart lady. I think you probably know that. I agree. She was, but she had a very unhappy life, and she was a diff very difficult person to work with. But she liked me, and she got, and we hired her to be the supervisor of our business. She was an excellent teacher, and very good teacher. And she worked for us for probably 15 years in home manufacturing. But my other employees had a lot of problems with her because she was very arbitrary and, and could be very nasty. And one day she threw her scissors at one of the other employees and almost put the, her eye out and hit it right. It scissors hit right there, and I fired her. And after that, she was my enemy for life, the rest of her life. And so, but over the years, I did many good things for Miriam, and I helped her with her son, Paul, who had terrible, terrible problems in school and other things. So. It was a mixed bag. I had a really good relationship with her, but I, I couldn't not fire her when she did that. Well, you, you've mentioned uh, another person that was a big person in your memory, uh, Charlotte Wright. Yes, I, I got my notes. All right, so and tell me, I, I mean, I remember. I, this is I, as far as I got. Uh, Charlotte Wright lived in the next house up to, on Old Milford Road on the other side of the street. The Stonehouse Press is here.